0: Well, welcome back Um, after a a break for Easter, but we're delighted to see you all here today. Um, If we need new chairs, just let me know. But we pick up today in the book of Acts, at Acts chapter 23, verses 12 and following, a reminder that Paul has been caught up in this riot in Jerusalem, accused falsely by those who've come down from Asia, perhaps from Ephesus, Of having taken gentiles into the temple courts of course that was not true it was a false accusation but it was enough to cause a riot in jerusalem the result of which of course was that the roman guards were called out at least 200 troops were called out to rescue paul paul gives a defense uh, before the jewish people and everything is calm and quiet until he mentions the fact that he was called to be an ambassador to the gentiles at which point we're told the people begin to attack Paul so viciously, that had he not been in the custody of the Romans, he probably would have been killed. And then we are told he was taken into protective custody, and it was then uh, that the Romans discovered that Paul, of course, as they were preparing to torture him to get the full story, discovered that he was a Roman citizen. And that's basically where we pick up the text today in Acts chapter 23, beginning at verse 12. We're going to go ahead and read through uh, at least verse 25. And if we have time, we'll read through the end of the chapter. So if you have your Bibles, you want to open them, please, and follow along. When it was days, day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who had made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, We have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now, therefore, you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you, as though you were going to determine his case more exactly, and we are ready to kill him before he comes near. Now, the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush, so he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Paul called once for the centurions and said, Take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul, the prisoner, called me and ask me to bring this young man to you, as he has something to say to you. The tribune took him by the hand, and going aside, asked him privately, What is it that you have to tell me? And he said, The Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow, as though you were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them, for more than forty of their men are lying in ambush for him, who have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink, till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, Tell no one that you have informed me of these things. Then he called two of the centurions and said, Get ready 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix, the governor. And he wrote a letter to this effect. Let's just go ahead and read through the letter. "'Claudius Lysias, to His Excellency, the Governor Felix, greetings. "'This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them "'when I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued him, "'having learned that he was a Roman soldier citizen. "'And desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, "'I brought him down to their council. "'I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, "'but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. "'And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man, "'I sent him to you at once.' Ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. So the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. And on the next day he returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with them. When they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. On reading the letter, he asked what province he was from. And when he learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. I've said from time to time that every single one of us is in one of three places. We are either in the midst of a storm, we've just come out of a storm, or we are heading into a storm. And I think that's just part of what it means to be a human being. Uh, This is one of the things that has always impressed me about the Christian faith. Christianity does not deny the harsh realities of human existence and life. The book of Job makes this very clear. In Job chapter 5 we read, Man is born to trouble as surely as sparks fly upward. And Jesus reiterated this. He said, In this life you will have tribulation." you will have trouble. Now, of course, Jesus went on to say, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. But he doesn't deny the fact that we're going to face difficulty, tribulation, trouble in this human life. You think about it, it's rather stunning that we are so surprised sometimes when hardship and difficulty come our way. Because we are told emphatically that this is going to happen. Sooner or later, if you're not in trouble now, you will be. In fact, somebody has described a Christian as just that, a person who is in constant trouble. Well, I've got that down pat. I don't know about you. Well, here we find the Apostle Paul heading into a great storm in his life. I think it's a particularly difficult time in the life of the Apostle Paul. Now, there's no denying the fact that Paul had faced hardship and trouble before. Almost from the beginning of his walk with Christ, he had faced difficulty. We're told in the ninth chapter of Acts, after Paul had been converted on the road to Damascus, the first thing he began to do after he regained his sight was he began to testify about Jesus in the synagogues and to his fellow Jews. And they plotted against him, plotted to assassinate him in a way very similar to what we're going to discover in this chapter. In fact, Paul's life was at such risk that his friends had to lower him down out of the city in a basket so that he could escape, and that was just days after his conversion. And I'd like to say that things sort of improved for Paul over the course of the succeeding years, but of course, that was not the case. On Paul's first missionary journey, when he and Barnabas went out and began to preach through the churches and established the churches in the Roman province of Galatia, Paul had faced difficulty in all of those places, in Antioch, the city in Antioch. In Iconium, in Derbe, in the case of Lystra, we said Paul was physically attacked. He was stoned and dragged outside the city and left for dead. In Acts chapter 16, we're told of how Paul and Silas had gone to Philippi and they had preached the gospel there. They'd cast that demon out of the slave girl. And as a consequence, they were accused of advocating customs that were not lawful for Romans to practice in that very Roman town. And they were thrown into jail, Facing the prospect of death the next day, they were fastened in the stocks. They were chained to the walls like common criminals, like animals. Paul had faced all kinds of difficulties over the course of his life. In 2 Corinthians, he actually goes so far as to catalog some of these things that he had endured during the 20 years or so that he had been a follower of Jesus Christ. Listen to what he says. He says, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes, less one. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak? And I am not weak. So as we can see, Paul had faced difficulty on many occasions. And yet I submit to you that this was probably the most difficult time in Paul's life. At least he was heading in to the greatest storm thus far. Because in spite of all those things that he'd been up into up to this point, there's no denying the fact that Paul still had been free. Even though that he'd been imprisoned on some occasions as he was there in Philippi, the reality was it was a temporary incarceration. Paul was never in jail for an extended period of time. So even though he may have faced Hardship and and difficulty, the difficulty normally passed, and Paul was able to be free again to go out and preach the gospel. From this point on, that is not going to be the case. Paul's next stop after Jerusalem, we're seeing that the Roman commander there in Jerusalem is going to have him sent off to Caesarea Maritima to stand trial before the governor, because of course he was a Roman citizen, but that next spot. Caesarea Maritima is where Paul is going to be for the next two years. The only place where he had spent two years up to this point had been Ephesus. And there, as I said, he'd been free, preaching the gospel every single day of the week. When he goes to Caesarea Maritima, he's going to be imprisoned. And from Caesarea Maritima, he's going to be sent where? On to Rome. Rome where he will be imprisoned. At least according to the book of Acts, we said that there's some speculation on the part of scholars that perhaps Paul was freed after he got to Rome and was allowed to travel again and went to Spain perhaps, but then was arrested again and ultimately martyred in Rome. We don't know if that's true, but at least according to the book of Acts, this is the end of the line for Paul. He is never going to be free again. And I think for somebody like Paul, who had a heart to take the gospel to the ends of the earth in fulfillment of the Great Commission, that would have been a very, very difficult thing for Paul. You ever feel as though you're in the midst of a storm? You ever feel those storm clouds rolling in? You ever feel the pressure drop? Well, that certainly was the case with Paul. Paul. Let's take a look at his circumstances for just a moment because it's, it's helpful to remember what was going on here. As we said, Paul had gone up to Jerusalem initially with the hope of delivering that Jerusalem fund, of melding together these two factions of the church, the Gentile faction and the Jewish faction. He'd gone up there with the best of intentions, but we said that he probably had been warned on numerous occasions that he shouldn't go to Jerusalem. And We said this may be, an illustration of Paul being outside the will of God. And as a result of not listening, perhaps, to the witness of the Holy Spirit, he found himself in a very compromising position. When he got to Jerusalem, James and the other leaders of the church suggested that he should take part in an oath, that he should take a vow along with some others, and that he should go up to the temple and he should make a sacrifice to show the Jewish believers that he was not opposed to the ceremonial law. Now, of course, Paul had always said that he upheld the moral law, but he had also made it very clear that Christians, particularly Gentile Christians, were no longer subject to the ceremonial law, the kosher laws, circumcision, that sort of thing. But he placed himself, or found himself, in this very compromising position in Jerusalem, made a promise that he would pay for this vow for the others, and that he would go up and he would make, at the end of the period, the end of the week, a sacrifice. Now, we said this is something that Paul would never have done on a previous occasion. In fact, he would have argued that there was only one sacrifice that was necessary to atone for sins. To borrow the language from the prayer book, Paul would have been very clear. There is only one full, perfect, and sufficient sacrifice, oblation, and satisfaction for the sins of the whole world, and that sacrifice is Jesus Christ, who is the Lamb of God. But Paul was so concerned about the dissension that existed between Jewish and Gentile Christians that, as we said, he agreed to do this. But we said while Paul was perhaps prepared to compromise a bit, God was not. We said that as important as the gospel was to Paul, the gospel was far more important to God. And so on the very day before Paul was to go up and make this sacrifice in the temple, what happens? Well, we're told this riot breaks out in Jerusalem. The Jews come down from Asia, probably, as I said, from Ephesus. They accused Paul of taking Gentiles into the temple precincts, which was against the law. He actually hadn't done that. He had simply been seen in Jerusalem with Gentiles. And the assumption was made that this was what he was doing. Maybe it wasn't even an assumption. It could very well have simply been a false charge aimed at getting at Paul. But whatever the reason, it worked. And we're told that this great riot broke out in the city, and had it not been the timely intervention of the Roman soldiers, Paul probably would have been killed. Well, we picked up today, we said, well, Paul was in Roman hands, and from what we can tell, that was a pretty safe place to be. He was a Roman citizen. Initially, the Romans were going to punish Paul, they were going to beat him, trying to get at the truth. They couldn't understand why these Jews were so upset. They couldn't understand why that word Gentile had got them so inflamed. And so we're told that they decided that they were going to stretch Paul out on on a rack and they were going to beat him until he told them the truth of what he was up to. Obviously, he was up to something because there was so much dissension. And it was at that point that Paul revealed that he was a Roman citizen. Incidentally... Just take a look for a moment at that letter that Claudius Lysias wrote, beginning in verse 26. For the most part, what this Roman soldier wrote was accurate, but it wasn't the whole truth. It was the truth, but it wasn't the whole truth and nothing but the truth. Verse 26, Claudius Lysias, to His Excellency, the Governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with soldiers and rescued him. Is that correct? Absolutely. Paul was being attacked by his people. They would have killed him had the Romans not come in with soldiers and rescued him. But this next part is interesting. Having learned that he was a Roman citizen, and desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. Well, he did discover that he was a Roman citizen. But how did he discover that Paul was a Roman citizen? He was about to torture Paul. It's it's convenient, isn't it, that he leaves that little part out. But that's where Paul was. And when they did find out that Paul was a Roman citizen, we pointed this out, they handled the situation admirably. They did exactly what was supposed to be done. They gave Paul all the privileges of a Roman citizen and even decided to send him on to the governor. But man is born to trouble as surely as sparks fly upward. Even though Paul would have been safe in Roman hands, we're told that there were those who were still determined that he should be destroyed. Those who had hated him and tried to kill him on a previous occasion, now plotted together with the Jewish religious leaders, and they conspired to assassinate Paul. That's what they were going to do. We're told that they were zealots. That's how it's described. When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath to neither eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 of them who made this conspiracy, and they went to the chief priests and the elders and said, We have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Who were the zealots? Well, the zealots were nationalists. They are very similar to what we would call terrorists today. They were willing to go to any means, any means necessary, any means possible, in order to drive out the Romans in order to uphold the Jewish traditions. They were zealous, as Paul had once been, for the traditions of their ancestors. Uh, it's even been suggested that perhaps Judas Iscariot, prior to his time with Jesus, had been a zealot. Because uh, there's some debate among scholars as to what his last name really means, Judas Iscariot. Iscariot can be a reference to a place. So he could have been Judas from a place that was known as Iscariot. But it could also be a form of the word Skarios, which meant assassin. Which, if that is true, helps us to explain why it was that Judas ultimately, having been with Jesus for all that time, ultimately betrayed him for 30 pieces of silver. Because you'll recall when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, and we just celebrated that two weeks ago, As Jesus rode into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, everybody was tearing down the palm branches. Everybody was shouting, Hosanna in the highest. What does the word Hosanna mean? Say it again. It means save us or save us now. Absolutely. We are saved. Save us now. In other words, it was not just a cry of joy. It was a cry of victory. The assumption was that Jesus was riding into Jerusalem to do what? to save his people. I I pointed out to you before, it's really interesting when you think about Palm Sunday, because as you read through the Gospels, one thing becomes very clear. The huge crowds that had followed Jesus in the years previous, up there in Galilee when he had 5,000 people and fed them with five loaves of bread and two small fish, huge throngs of people. And incidentally, the crowd was probably bigger than that. It didn't even count the women and children. But by the time you get to Holy Week, those huge crowds have dissipated. It's just a handful of followers until Palm Sunday when all of a sudden the crowds are back and there's pandemonium in the streets. And why is that? The Gospel of John tells us why. It's because Jesus had just performed an extraordinary and public miracle. He had raised Lazarus from the dead. Now you all know Jesus had raised people from the dead on previous occasions. Uh, He had raised the widow of Nain's son. He had raised... Uh, the daughter of Jairus, the synagogue ruler. But all of those occasions had been very private affairs. The raising of Lazarus from the dead was a public affair. First of all, Lazarus had been in the grave for four days. Furthermore, we're told that a large number of Jews had traveled out from Jerusalem to Bethany to comfort the sisters in the loss of their brother. So when Jesus went there and called Lazarus out of the tomb, many people saw it. Many people witnessed it, and just a few days later, Jesus said he's setting his face toward Jerusalem. And everybody assumed, well, then he must be the Messiah. My goodness, he raises people from the dead. That's exactly what we expected the Messiah to do. He set his face toward Jerusalem. Everybody assumed that he was going to Jerusalem to do what? Drive out the Romans. And it was all carefully choreographed. Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey. Well, the Old Testament said that when the Messiah arrived, he would come... On the back of a donkey and so Jesus was indeed presenting himself to the people of Jerusalem as the Messiah and the people were saying save us save us now you could just imagine if Judas had been one of the zealots what he was thinking this is it he's finally got on the rail he's gonna do it but then all of a sudden over the course of the week Jesus makes it very clear he had come to be lifted up but not lifted up upon a throne but lifted up on a what on a cross and you can see over the course of those intervening days between Palm Sunday and Good Friday the short span of less than a week those shouts of Hosanna in the highest become shouts of what crucify him crucify him you can imagine that people felt betrayed by Jesus Isn't it interesting if Judas was one of these zealots thinking that the Messiah's whole purpose was to drive out the Romans and to reestablish the glory days of King David, the great Davidic dynasty, and here was Jesus presenting himself as the Messiah, performing miracles, but then going in and saying he was going to be lifted up upon a cross? And what did the Old Testament said? Cursed is he who is lifted up upon a cross. Isn't it interesting that we called Judas the betrayer, but Judas himself perhaps felt betrayed. And so for 30 pieces of silver, he figured, if Jesus is not the Messiah, let's get rid of him. Those were the zealots. That's what these people were like. They were blinded by their zeal and their expectations of who the Messiah would be and what the Messiah would do. Well, these are some of the same sort of people who are conspiring against the Apostle Paul. They don't think Paul is simply a, a troublemaker, they think that Paul is somebody that has to be rid of. They they need to get rid of him. He needs to be wiped from the face of the earth. They feel that he was doing what? Corrupting the traditions of Israel. My goodness! He's, He's telling us that Gentiles are our brothers. There's one thing that these Jews did not believe was that the Gentiles were their brothers. The Gentiles were what? Uncircumcised, unclean dogs. And if that's what this man, we don't care if he's one of our countrymen, if that's what he's teaching, he is teaching a damnable deceit and he needs to be killed. And if nobody else has the guts to do it, so the zealots thought, we'll do it. And we'll do whatever it takes in order to make it happen. And so we're told they made a vow. They not only made a vow that they were not going to eat or drink, but they also conspired, we're told, with what? With the chief priests and the elders. Verse 14, they went to the chief priests and the elders instead, said, we have strictly bound ourselves by an oath, not to taste food until we have killed Paul. However, they go on to say, In order to make this happen, and we know you want this to happen as well, we need your help. Now, therefore, verse 15, go along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case more exactly, and we are ready to kill him before he comes near. Politics makes what? Strange bedfellows. What is particularly interesting about this is that normally the Zealots didn't particularly like the chief priests and the elders. They didn't like the Sanhedrin. As far as they were concerned, the chief priests and the elders were part of the trouble. They particularly didn't like Ananias, who was the high priest. In fact, in the year 70 A.D., when Rome was attacked by the Romans and the city was razed, one of the first people killed was the chief priests. And you know who he was killed by? Not by the Romans, but by his own people. He was assassinated by the Zealots. And yet here they are working together with him. Some people have asked, some scholars have suggested that that simply wouldn't have happened. Of course it would have happened. Governments all the time cooperate with terrorists, don't they? We oftentimes do it even though they are a threat to us, because they're also a threat to those who are also a threat to us. How does the old saying go? My enemy's enemy is my friend. And so you see these various factions, the zealots, the chief priests, the elders, they're all conspiring together to take the life of this man, Paul. Does that sound familiar to you? sounds remarkably similar to what happened to Jesus some years before, doesn't it? when we're told that the Jews went before Pontius Pilate and they said, we have a law. This law says that this man should die. And Pontius Pilate examines Jesus and he comes out and he says, I find no fault with the man. He hasn't broken any Roman laws. He's done nothing that's deserving of death. Therefore, I'll flog him just to satisfy you, but then I'm going to release him. And what did the people shout out at that point? If you release him, you are no friend of Caesar, for we have no king but Caesar you believe they actually said that? But you see, they were willing to say anything in order to what? Achieve the end. That's why I say this was a particularly difficult time in the life of the Apostle Paul. He had faced hardship before, but my goodness. His own people are conspiring against him. They are willing to do anything in order to destroy him. Somebody was asking me if I'd seen the movie about Paul yet. They said it's a very human perspective on Paul. I haven't seen the movie yet so I can't pass judgment on it. But we can't forget that Paul was human. And if the movie does depict him as a human being, well it should as I've said to you before. We're not talking about figures in stained glass, we're not talking about plaster saints. We're talking about flesh and blood people. And when you think about all that was happening to Paul at this point in Acts chapter 23, you can't help but ask yourself the question, was Paul discouraged? Was he going through a difficult time? I've lost my mic. Was he not only discouraged, but was he filled with regret? Did you ever find yourself in a difficult place, and you're wondering to yourself, why am I here? You ever felt, woe is me? What's that old line from hee-haw? If it weren't for bad luck, I'd have no luck at all. You ever feel that way in your life? I've wondered if Paul wasn't filled with regret. Perhaps as he's facing all of this and he hears about this plot that there are those out there conspiring to kill him, I've wondered if Paul hadn't thought to himself, you know, I should have listened all along When I'd been warned in the Holy Spirit by the Ephesian elders, when Agabus had come down and taken my belt and tied himself up and said, This is how you're going to be bound if you go to Jerusalem, I wonder if he hadn't thought to himself on a couple of occasions, Perhaps I should have listened all along. You ever feel that way in your life? You ever regret the decisions that you've made and the consequences that you face as a result? How many of you have ever been there in your life? We've all been there in our life, and I'm sure that the Apostle Paul was there as well. But I want you to notice something. In spite of his regret and his difficulty, in spite of the fact that Paul must have known that he was facing a very difficult time in his life, he had received a message of encouragement. Look at Acts chapter 23, verse 11. We're told that after Paul had initially been seized by the soldiers, taken away by them in force, and brought into the barracks, verse 11, the Lord spoke to him. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. In other words, the Lord had encouraged Paul I think that's an important message for us because what you're going to find is that in the rest of the story here, the name of Jesus is not mentioned a single time. In other words, Jesus spoke to Paul prior to being sent to Caesarea Philippi, but then when this plot is hatched, there's no mention of Jesus speaking to Paul again. No reference to Jesus speaking that calm, still voice to Paul's troubled heart. He speaks to him... But then there's silence. Have you ever been in that place in your life? When God seems to be silent. You remember a time when He spoke so clearly to you, but then there were other times when it seemed as though you hear absolutely nothing. C.S. Lewis, in his book A Grief Observed, Lewis was grieving at the death of his wife, wrote this. I think it's one of the most honest of all Lewis's works. He said, meanwhile, where is God? He said, this is one of the most disquieting symptoms. When you are happy, so happy that you have no sense of needing him, so happy that you are tempted to feel his claims upon you as an interruption. If you remember yourself and turn to him with gratitude and praise, you will be, or so it feels, welcomed with open arms. But go to him when your need is desperate, when all other help is in vain. And what do you find? A door slammed in your face and a sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside after that silence. You may as well turn away. The longer you wait, the more emphatic the silence will become. There are no lights in the windows. It might as well be an empty house. You wonder was it ever inhabited? It seemed so once, and that seeming was as strong as this. What can this mean? Why is he so present a commander in time of prosperity and so very absent a help in time of trouble? Ever been there? I'm happy to say C.S. Lewis didn't remain there. He went on to say, I have gradually been coming to feel that the door is no longer shut and bolted. Was it my own frantic need that slammed it in my face? The time when there is nothing at all in your soul except a cry for help may be just the time when God can't give it. You are like the drowning man who can't be helped because he clutches and grabs. Perhaps your own reiterated cries deafen you to the voice you hope to hear. On the other hand, knock and it shall be opened. But does knocking mean hammering and kicking the door like a maniac? And there's also to him that hath shall be given. After all, you must have a capacity to receive, or even omnipotence cannot give it. Perhaps your own passion temporarily destroys the capacity. We've all been there, haven't we? Times of desperation, you cry out to God, and it seems God is silent. What do you do in those difficult times? I think what you do in those difficult times is remember those moments when God did speak to you. You remember those moments in time when you were capable of, of listening to him. You remember those moments when your cries of dereliction are not so loud that you cannot hear the still, small voice. We must never forget that God is the Lord of our circumstances. Whatever you're going through, whatever you're facing, it may have taken you by surprise, but it has not taken God by surprise. Surprise. And even though it may seem as though the lights are out and the doors bolted and locked, the reality is God is still there. In fact, some have suggested that he is probably closer to you when he is silent than at any other point. This is what Paul was to remember in the times of difficulty, when everybody was plotting against him, when he could not hear the word of the Lord, he was to remember what God had said to him in the past. Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. This is so important for us as Christians to remember that ours is an historic faith. I know I place a, a special emphasis upon history, but it's so important. This is not some sort of pie-in-the-sky reality. We believe in a God who actually walked the earth. We believe in a God who actually took action in history. We believe in a God who died in time and history and who rose in time and history, and as a consequence of that, history has never been the same, nor will it ever be. I think about some of the saints who've been called to great tasks, overwhelming tasks, difficult tasks, Herculean tasks. And I've sometimes wondered, where have they found the strength to do it? One of the most impressive people in all the Bible to me. Sometimes we Protestants ignore her. Roman Catholics perhaps put too much emphasis on her. But she was a remarkable person, and that is Mary, the mother of our Lord. Such an extraordinary woman. Keep your finger there in Acts and turn back to Luke chapter 1 for just a moment. going to begin at verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to the city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin, betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying, And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. I suppose it's because I have a daughter that's about 13 years of age that I find this to be so moving. Mary probably wasn't much older than that. She was a virgin, she was probably a teenager. And all of a sudden, an angel comes to her. She's poor. She's not highly educated. Now, she's a remarkable young woman. She obviously has a pure heart. She is open to the will of God. But all of a sudden, this angelic being, and most of the time when people encounter angelic beings, the first thing they wanted to do was to fall on their face and begin to worship them. So this was an impressive being. You're a 13-year-old girl, perhaps. And all of a sudden, this angelic visitor comes, and informs you that you are going to be the bearer of the Messiah. For centuries, your people have been longing, hoping, anticipating that a Savior would come, and you are going to be the mother of that Savior. And how is this going to happen to you since you're not married? Oh, well, God, the Holy Spirit, is going to come and overshadow you. And you're going to produce the child. Can you imagine what that would have been overwhelming to a 13-year-old girl? And how do you explain it? I mean, be honest. If your granddaughter came home, 16 years old, not married, telling you that she's expecting a child, and you say, now who's the father? And she says, it's God the Holy Spirit. How many, You're laughing. Why are you laughing? Do you understand that that's precisely what Mary's family was going to do? We're told that Joseph didn't believe her, did he? He didn't believe her. In fact, we're told he wanted to divorce her quietly. According to Jewish custom in those days, even though they had not taken their marriage vows, the betrothal itself was a legally binding contract. So you had to get out of it by legal means. And adultery in those days was punishable, but by death. Remember the woman that was caught in adultery and brought before Jesus? And the people who accused her said, the law says she should be stoned. Mary could have been stoned for this. And she's going to go to Joseph, to whom she's engaged, and say, well, I'm expecting a child. And Joseph says, well, whose is it? Oh, it's God's. And we're told that Joseph, because he was a righteous man, decided to put her away quietly. In other words, send her away. He didn't want to see her subject to shame. He certainly didn't want to see her put to death. But he was nevertheless determined to do what? Divorce her. It would take an angelic visitor coming to him before he would submit. That's an overwhelming Herculean task. Nobody could do it. Where did she find the strength in the midst of those difficult and indeed lonely times to persevere? I don't think we're left in any darkness about that. Look at Luke chapter 1 verse 46. We're told in those days Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judea and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth said, blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb, Mary said, and we have this most famous section, this portion of the Gospel of Luke, the Magnificat. And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him, listen to this, from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. And then the rest of the Magnificat is what? It's a recitation of the deeds of God in the history of Israel. For he has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent empty away. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our forefathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. What the Magnificat basically says is this. I can trust God for the future because God has proven himself faithful in the past. That's why Christian history is important. Ours is not a a faith that is a hope against hope. It's not credulity. It's based upon real, live events. God has acted in the past. He's acted faithfully in the lives of other people. And because God has been so faithful in the past, we don't know what the future holds. None of us do. But whatever it holds, we know that because God has been faithful in the past, we can trust him for that future. And that is so important especially in those times when we're facing real storms and God seems silent. He's not always silent. There are times when we're just in the midst of chaos and panic that we cannot hear Him. And in those moments, the best thing we can perhaps do is to remember, to remember God's faithfulness in the past. And because He's been faithful in the past, we can trust Him for the future. Something else we should remember is that God is the sovereign Lord of circumstances. Whatever you're facing in your life right now, or whatever your future holds, as I've said to you many times before, it may take you by surprise. It may shock you, but it is not taking God by surprise. It is not shocking Him. Wherever you are going, He is already there. That was so true of Paul wasn't it if Paul would just pause for a moment and look back over his own life just over the course of the past week or so he could see God at work in the smallest of details in the smallest of circumstances here was Paul going up to Jerusalem prepared to compromise the gospel right which would have brought discredit on his entire ministry all those years for which he had labored if he had gone through with that what would have happened Paul would have been seen as a hypocrite, but God didn't let it happen. God was the author of the circumstances and the situation. On the day before he was supposed to go up to the temple, what happened? The riot broke out. Paul was not compromised. His gospel was not discredited in any way. In the end, God provided protection, didn't he, for Paul when the people attacked him. The Romans were there. They were there in force. It just so happened that the Romans were close at hand that they could come down and rescue Paul. What if it had been in some other part of the city where there was no Roman garrison close at hand? Paul would have been killed. But it just so happens that the riot broke out at that particular place, right within sight of the Antonia Fortress where these Roman soldiers were quartered. Not only that, but the commander of the Roman garrison was this man, a just man by the name of Claudius Lysias. Who, when Paul spoke to him in Greek, because he was a Greek, had pity upon Paul. Are you a Greek? Do you speak Greek? Do you speak good Greek? What's this all about? And we see in the story, even when those zealots were there conspiring against Paul, determined to take his life, we're told, this is an interesting factor in the story, that Paul's nephew was there and overheard this. Incidentally, this is the only reference that we have to Paul's family anywhere. We we really don't know. We know that Paul, obviously, was a Roman citizen, so his father was a Roman citizen. He had inherited his citizenship, but that's all we know about the family of Paul. They probably were people of means because Paul had a very fine classical education. We said he was perhaps even educated there at the great university in Tarsus. And then he'd been sent off to Jerusalem to train under one of the foremost rabbis of the day, Gamaliel. So it could be the case that, that Paul came from a, a family of means. But on one occasion, Paul says, I have suffered the loss of all things for the sake of Christ. When he says, I've suffered the loss of all things for the sake of Christ, I wonder, did he mean his family as well? They were devout Jews. they had invested heavily in this young man. He had been zealous for the traditions of his ancestors. They had great hopes for him. And then he'd gone off and turned his back on all of that and began to preach to the Gentiles. I wonder if the family was part of that loss that Paul had suffered. Jesus said that that would happen to us, didn't he? He said, if you love your father or your mother or your children or your brothers or your sisters more than me, you are not worthy of me. During the war between the states, there was a famous union general his name was George Henry Thomas. He was the Rock of Chickamauga, the Battle of Chickamauga in 1863. He became one of the four great Union generals of the war after Grant and Sherman. I know that's, you may not consider him a great general, but at any rate, <laughs> in the pantheon of Union commanders, he followed Grant, Sherman, Sheridan, and then there was normally George Henry Thomas. George Henry Thomas had a very difficult life. He was from Virginia. And when the war broke out in 1861, he decided to remain loyal to the Union. He had three sisters. He was devoted to them, loved them dearly. But when he sided with the Union over Virginia, they took his portrait, which hung above the fireplace, and they turned it to the wall. And they disowned him. And years after the conflict, when he had really gained great fame, one of his sisters was asked about her brother, and she said, we have no brother. He died in 1861. It was a man who, for his convictions, lost his family. Well, you wonder if that didn't happen to the Apostle Paul. He suffered the loss of all things, and yet there was at least one family member that just happened to be in Jerusalem at this particular time, and what's interesting is well suited, close enough to the Sanhedrin that he could hear about the plot. Perhaps this was the nephew who'd been sent to Jerusalem to train under the Sanhedrin, under the same rabbis that Paul had trained under, in the hopes that he might what? Redeem his uncle's reputation. You you can't help but wonder if that was the case. But isn't it interesting that he would be there at just this moment and situated in just that place that he could hear about this plot and bring it to the attention of the Roman commander. Now, the world looks at that and says, well, that's really a remarkable coincidence. But I'm here to tell you in the Christian life and in the life of the believer, there's no such thing. This is not a coincidence. This is the sovereignty of God. God was using the circumstances in Paul's life, not only to protect Paul, but ultimately, listen to this, for God's own glory. Keep your finger there in Acts chapter 23 and go back to Acts chapter 9 for a moment. It's been some time since we've been in Acts chapter 9. It's the story of the conversion of Paul. You know the story. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And he is here with authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. Translate, I don't want to go i don't want to see this man i know all about him i said to you when we looked at acts chapter 9 this was the heinrich himmler of his day you've got the wrong person lord and what is god's response but the lord said to him verse 15 you go for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name and here's the critical part before gentiles and kings and the children of israel Flip ahead to Acts chapter 23. By this point in his ministry, Paul had already borne witness before the Jews, hadn't he? He'd already borne witness before the Gentiles. There's only one category of people before whom he had not borne witness before the kings, before the rulers of the day. What's going to happen? Well, what's going to happen as a result of his circumstances is that Paul is going to be dispatched up to Caesarea Maritima where he will be imprisoned. And the first thing he will do is he will stand trial and bear witness before a Roman governor, Antonius Felix. Then before another Roman governor, Porcius Festus. And finally before a Jewish king Agrippa, and finally, before the most powerful temporal ruler the world had ever known, Caesar himself. You see, all of this was part of the plan. All of it was part of God's plan, God working all things together for good. That great passage from Romans 8, Paul knew it to be true in his own life, that's why he declared it. For we know that in all things, God works together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes. God works all things together for good. Even Paul's rebellion, God ultimately used what? To fulfill his plan, his purpose, that Paul should bear witness before kings. So what about the storm in your life? Some of you are in the midst of one. Some of you have come out of one. If you're out of it or you're in it, and even if you're not, you're going into it sooner or later. What about the storm in your life? What are we supposed to do when the sky darkens, when you hear the thunderclaps? when the winds are blowing, howling so loud that you cannot hear the voice of God, when it sounds as though there's just silence? Well, the first thing is, remember, God is aware of it. He's not surprised. He's not taken. Second of all, remember that you are to live by His Word in the silence. Even if He's not speaking to you right now, or even if you are not capable of hearing Him right now, hark back to those moments when you did hear His voice. And hold fast to that. When he said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you, I will be with you always, even unto the ends of the earth. Third thing, remember this. Whatever circumstances you are in, God is the sovereign Lord of your circumstances. That doesn't necessarily mean that he causes the evil to come into your life, but it does mean that God is capable of using the evil in your life. That's one of the greatest things about the Christian faith. We have a God who has been there. And that's the final point. Remember this, God understands. The author of Hebrews says, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weakness. But we have a God who's been tempted in every way just as we are. Have you been deserted by your best friends? He knows exactly what that feels like. Have you been let down by those closest to you? Could you not watch with me one hour? Have you felt forsaken? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Whatever you have been through, he knows it. He's experienced it. That's the mystery of the incarnation. And because he knows and because he understands, even in the darkness, even in the silence, he is mighty to save. Next week, when we come back, we're going to take a look at Paul as he stood before kings and governors. It's a remarkable story. The governor that Paul stood before was an interesting character, to say the least. He was a governor, but he wasn't much. And it would have been a very difficult thing for Paul to stand before this kind of a man, one of the most corrupt men in all of history. And the question is, how did Paul bear witness in the face of that kind of opposition, in the face of that kind of corruption, standing before a man who has temporal power over him? But Paul realizes that he answers to another judge. Not to the Roman governor, but to the king of the universe. We'll take a look at that next week. We have two minutes. So, questions, concerns, challenges about any of that? Martha. Um, perhaps, perhaps, um, every culture has had its zealots, those who, um, may be fighting for the right cause, but for all the wrong reasons, and, um, and are sometimes blinded by what they see as their own particular vision of the way reality ought to play out. I think that was the problem for Paul. Um, One of the things that Paul says is, and we talked about this in here before, he mentions the fact that when it came to his life in Judaism, he lived with a clear conscience. Now you say, how in the world did you live with a clear conscience when you were out there murdering people, dragging back men, women, and children? And we said Paul was able to do that. Why? Because his conscience was not informed by the Holy Spirit, not informed by the Word of God. Your conscience, people say, let your conscience be your guide. Well, that's not necessarily so. Unless your conscience is illumined by the word of God, don't let your conscience be your guide. Because your conscience can cause you to do things that are not in accord with the will of God. That's why Martin Luther, when he stood before the Diet of Worms, said, My mind is captive to the word of God. I cannot and will not recant. Here I stand. I cannot do otherwise. God help me. But it's the part about my mind being captive to the word of God. The zealots, I think, loved Israel. They loved the traditions of their ancestors. But like Paul, they were blinded because of their own vision for the way things were, that they were incapable of seeing what God's will was. I think the greatest shock that ever happened to Paul was when he asked on the road to Damascus the question, Who are you, Lord? And the answer came back, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Yes? He gave us our what? Well, um, there is an internal witness within us. But, and this is what Kendall mentioned this last night in his class, and I wish he had gone on because um, I'd be interested to know if I'm in the same place that he's in. Um, he mentioned the fact that the fall had an effect upon humanity. And one of the things that he said was that there's this sort of optimistic view, which is the view of C.S. Lewis and the view of the Roman Catholic Church, that our reason can take us so far. And then he says there's the more pessimistic John Calvin view that says that our reason can barely take us anywhere at all. And, um, And somebody asked him, well, where do you stand? And he said, in good Anglican fashion, somewhere between John Calvin and C.S. Lewis. Um, I I must confess, I fall more on the Calvin end of the spectrum of things. Um, As I've said to you before, uh, I believe in the doctrine of total depravity. Now, that's not utter depravity. That doesn't mean we're as bad as we could possibly be, but it means that there's no aspect of our character that has not somehow been touched by sin, including our conscience. So while these things are... Certainly, divine endowments that God has given us, we have to be aware of the fact that even when we look at the circumstances of our life, as Paul says, we see through a glass dimly. We do not see things clearly. And so, even our conscience can at times lead us astray. I think the picture that you get in the Bible is not a picture of the greatness of humanity. Yes, man is made in the image of God, we are the greatest of all the creatures, but we have fallen. We have fallen, we are imperfect, that's why we need a savior. I mean, if you, you look at the picture of, God, of humanity at the time of the, of the great flood, we're told that when God looked upon mankind, he saw that the inclinations of their heart were only to do what? Evil all the time. You Think about that, the inclination of their heart was only to do evil all the time. In Ephesians chapter two, Paul says, we were dead in our trespasses and in our sins. It's it's not a matter of being sin sick and sorrow worn. We're dead, we're we're spiritually dead. And that's why God has to do what? Make us alive again. That's why Jesus spoke of a new birth. That's why Peter spoke of a, a new birth to a living hope. It's because unless God takes us and raises us to the new life again, we are dead in our trespasses and in our sins. And even our conscience, therefore, can guide us in a way that it should not go. And so even that needs to be redeemed. Even that needs to be sanctified. And the more we recognize the sinfulness in our own lives, the more we recognize the wonder and the glory and the majesty of a Savior who loves us in spite of that. So our conscience is there, and it can be our guide, provided that we recognize that it is faulty, and we recognize that it needs to be redeemed by the power of the grace of God. Okay. Well, <laughs> well, that's my job, so. All right, well, let's close with a word of prayer and uh, we'll send you on your way. Gracious God, our Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for the circumstances of Paul's life. He may very well have been discouraged. He may have been filled with regret over his own past failings and foolishness and willful disobedience. We've all been there, Lord. And there are times when we're in the midst of the storm, sometimes the storm of our own making, when we cry out to you and it seems that all we are hearing is silence. And yet we know that you are the God of our circumstances. Nothing has taken you by shock or by surprise, and you have promised in the past that you will work all things together for our good. So in these difficult times when the wind is blowing and we cannot hear you, grant us the grace to remember what you have already said. Hold fast to that and know that eventually the skies will clear and the day will dawn. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.